Hi everyone, welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast. Whether for yourself or your company or organization, it's likely you've spent some time thinking about cybersecurity. The number of cyber threats and breaches is increasing and will continue to increase according to today's guest. When asked which threat would negatively impact their companies in the next 12 months, CEOs in PwC's 25th Annual Global CEO Survey ranked cyber risks as the top threat. To get some answers about what to expect and how businesses can prepare for an evolving threat landscape, we turn to Sean Joyce, PwC's global and U.S. cybersecurity, privacy, risk and regulatory leader. Sean is a former coder and spent 25 years at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, his last role there as deputy director. The conversation you're about to hear is an episode of Policy on Demand, and a shorter video version is included in the description of this episode. Here's our conversation with Sean. Sean, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Sindhu. Great to be here today. Great to be with you in person as well. I know. It is. It's it been is a while. With not, without a mask. It's, exactly. But we have our distance. <laughs> we have our distance. <laughs> we have rules. We follow them. Um, before we get into all the nuts and bolts of cybersecurity, I want for our viewers and listeners who don't know about your background to, to provide a little bit of insight, because security is written all over your resume, first of all. So you were with the FBI for 25 years. Yes. Talk about that. Deputy director, what did you do? I was. So uh, so let me take a step back because it, it kind of fits into the story. So a long time ago, I went to college um, and I was a computer science major in the School of Management at BC. Uh, I came out uh, and I worked as a what they call now a software engineer for Raytheon data systems. Mm-hmm. So I went to Arthur Innocent IT Consulting and then took a right turn for almost 27 years. Um, and so the deputy director in the FBI, actually the approximately 36,000 men and women report to the deputy director, and then the deputy reports to, I, at that time I reported to Bob Mueller, and then I did the transition to Jim Comey. So you really run uh, the day-to-day operations of uh, the FBI, um, but I would tell you, uh, I did nothing. It's the pronoun we. So obviously a lot of great people there that are part of the team. And then you also have the responsibility to um, unfortunately testify on the Hill. Um, and also uh, over, I was over to the White House quite frequently talking about broader policy matters uh, and some other issues. Well, that all reeks of high level and, and sounds fascinating. So what are you doing at PwC? So as you mentioned before in uh, my introduction, I really work with a lot of companies, boards of directors, talking about risk, but specifically cyber risk, because over the last, I would say, decade, it has become an increasingly important risk that companies are facing and unfortunately affected by uh, cyber crimes. Mm -hmm. So it's really uh, helping a lot of them all the way from kind of a strategy in that space, all the way through implementation and execution and helping them with that. I would say most of my personal time is really spent with boards helping educate them, train them to understand the risk a little bit better, also how to kind of deal with it at a board level, and then also talking to the C-suite. So yesterday, I was with a major insurance company talking to their executive team, talking about tech risk, cyber risk, data risk, and really kind of looking to the future, how to embed that and integrate that into the business, and really how to bring that culture 
of sort of oversight of that risk. So they're actually an agile company that can face some of the issues that are, could arise. Okay, and where what industries are affected the most um, with cyber threats, cyber breaches? Like, th there's there have to be some companies where whoever's doing the hacking is saying, okay, this is an easy target. Well, there's a difference between an easy target and then who the adversaries are actually uh, looking at. So let me, uh, I would say, frame it this way. When I look at the adversaries out there, and I would term an adversary of people who are trying to obtain money, information, intellectual property. So I first look at a category that's called what we call nation states. So we know many uh, governments actually employ cyber uh, as a basically asymmetric piece of whether it's their intelligence gathering capabilities are actually part of, as we're seeing in some parts of the world right now, right, part of their actually warfare. So they are um, the nation states. And when we talk about uh, those we're referring to China, Iran, North Korea, those are the countries uh, that the United States specifically is most concerned about. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking at anything from intellectual property. So, you know, when I talk about these countries, this isn't a comment about the people of those countries or about good or bad. It's just really understanding some of the risks that they present uh, to companies. When you look at uh, Russia, they're really looking at it as a tool. Um, that they're using from an asymmetric perspective. So how they can leverage that for intelligence, also preparatory work in case in times of conflict. So looking at it from a, a little different perspective. And then I would say you have a, what we call the unpredictables. Okay. So Iran and North Korea, where sometimes, you know, North Korea, because of the economic conditions there, sometimes are doing that just to uh, prop their economy. Uh, because of getting so financial gain. So un, you'll really see some of those other uh, countries talk about like ransomware or use ransomware. North Korea is a place that would do that to raise uh, funds. And then you look at Iran again that has some things there. I will couch that. Many governments, including the United States, is involved in cyber activity. Um, the United States uh, looks at it from a foreign intelligence perspective, which is about intent and capabilities, mm -hmm. not economic gain. So it's not a value judgment on any of these countries. It's a matter of how they sort of leverage and how they go about uh, doing that. So that's why you'll often never see certain countries in the newspapers about economic espionage and some of these other areas. The next category is organized crime and criminals, mm -hmm. right? Most cyber incidents are for, is done from a financial motivation. Right, but what they have done is developed tool sets and really exported those tool sets to many different areas in the world. So these organized crime and just criminal groups are all over the world, right, and affecting many companies uh, throughout the world. Then when I look at hacktivists, what we call hacktivists, that are really for usually a, a socially motivated purpose that you know, typically do web defacements, but they also do many other things for their issue, right? They're kind of depending on that. So think of, uh, you know, some of the uh, ESG related mm -hmm. organizations, et cetera, that are sometimes uh, attacked or individuals that support those entities sometimes attack some of the corporate 
that they don't agree with some of the actions that they're taking. The next is what I call insiders. Mm -hmm. So a lot of incidents, approximately, I don't know, 33, 34% of cyber incidents are from actually employees or contract employees of an organization. Some of it is malicious, some of it is not, but it's kind of a surprising area where there's a lot of activity um, that companies sometimes are not aware of. So can you accidentally hack into a system? I don't know if you can accidentally hack into a system, and I'm using the word in quotes, hack, um, but I think sometimes uh, people will extract information uh, unwittingly that they didn't know they shouldn't have access to, or somehow they had access to something they shouldn't have and downloaded or are looking at okay. it. So a lot of it is not sometimes intentional, but a lot of it is also intentional where people are sort of just, I would say, probing sometimes inside the company what they can have access to or something like that. So I want to amend one thing that I said. I said, used the term easy target and then yeah. you corrected it. But so not just an easy target, but how is, how is an industry or a company advantageous to yeah. break So, so I, I wanted to, and I know it was a long-winded frame, um, but, but when I look at, when you look at those nation states, they're usually looking at the aerospace and defense industry. They're looking at the tech industry, right? They're looking at, I, I would say, technology and intellectual property mm -hmm. that they're trying to gain insights into. So if you look at the pandemic, there was a lot of nation state activity looking at research, some of the drugs that were being developed throughout the world, that type of thing. So I would say aerospace and defense technology, that's really where that nation states, mm -hmm. right, are focused. And I say broad in technology, right, there are some uh, companies across the industries, but they're doing research and development in some key, right. key areas, right? When I look at the organized crime and criminal groups, they're the ones that are the opportunists. Right, so they're gonna be looking at the easy targets. So aerospace and defense and financial services typically are not the easy targets, right? Okay. So they're yeah. looking at retail, they're looking at, uh, you know, sometimes uh, I would say smaller entities where they can, uh, whether it's, you know, do a ransomware and, and obviously extort some uh, money or healthcare is also, I would say, not at the same level as some of those uh, industries. And again, this is, I'm giving you some broad statements. Those of you listening out there, that doesn't mean if you're in that industry, you're not good at it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying typically these financially motivated individuals mm -hmm. are going for those least protected. Okay. Right? So again, that goes into company by company. It depends on how much you're investing right, that sort of culture you've developed in that country and everything else, that's what makes you an easy or a harder to infiltrate target. Okay, so most of the listeners and viewers of this show are large multinationals or people who work with the large multinationals. So if, if you look at a large multinational, mm -hmm. what, is, what does this cyber threat look like? It looks complex. And it looks complex because, as many of the listeners know out there, there are a lot of geopolitical issues, right? And so when you look at China and some re recently passed regulation and legislation and really keeping the data inside the country.
The EU is doing it in a different way with GDPR, mm-hmm. right? But it's the same type of thing. We also have our own, right, state by state, unfortunately, right. privacy laws, right? So it is very complex, I would say, at that multinational level. So that, and when I say complex, that also brings, and I don't want to get too technical here, but you get into sort of what your network looks like and who around the world has access to what. And it's really important, especially in today's operational world and business ecosystem, Mm -hmm. that they call what they call network segmentation, where you actually carefully look at how you actually segment your network and make sure right it's limited that access is limited to what those individuals in certain regions of the world need mm-hmm. right and making sure that their connectivity and access is not anything greater than it should be okay you mentioned the pandemic earlier and i remember distinctly when i was you know we were all working from home that hearing news reports about cyber threats becoming a big concern for companies because all your employees are all of a sudden working from home where the protections are not there anymore you know that you have in the office so it it was a huge concern at that time we're you know now in heading into hopefully soon spring of 2022 um how has that concern evolved to today what does it look like today so the, the pandemic has really brought about some incredible changes right, within around the world. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just increasing that risk, but we as a, I would say, global economy have become much more digital. And so I relate, I was talking to a, uh, a CEO of a, a company and we were talking about how his dad, who was 78 years old, has become like using like he every time he wanted to make a banking transaction he'd walk down the street or drive and go to the bank and now he's doing everything online right and and when we talk about telehealth and all of that's changed so the pandemic right I, i look at some macro things that have happened in the world the one is the work from home and so when people talk about the attack surface area, what does that mean? That actually means when you're talking about the number of devices, you're talking about the number of ways people connect into your company's network has actually changed and morphed. So that work from home, big macro change, increases right the threat. And especially if companies have a BYOD, bring your own device policy, mm-hmm. versus, hey, we issue everyone a laptop or whatever the device is, there are definitely different risk profiles there. The second thing is most companies have really accelerated their digital transformation, right? What does that mean? Once again, it means more things are happening in that digital world. That that creates additional risk and exposure. You're saying the the digital transformation has increased over the past two years? Incredibly, it's accelerated. It's not that we weren't doing digital transformation before, right. but now it has accelerated greatly. I think, you know, talking to uh, many C-suite members out there, they're talking about, hey, what used to be five years is now becoming two years, mm-hmm. right? So we're seeing that change, the whole acceleration to the cloud, right? And so, you know, I'm an, I was an advocate. I still am an advocate. Like a lot of times I get, hey, Sean, is the cloud more secure? 
And I would say most of the time, you have some very sophisticated companies out there who do an outstanding job in cybersecurity. For most companies, right, when you're looking at the major cloud service providers, mm -hmm. they do a very, very good job. They're used to seeing those threats every day, all day, and doing it. The, the challenge, I think, for a lot of companies now is, as you go to the cloud, there's two things. A, there's concentration risk. So all of the folks are only going to one place now versus a million places, right? right? The second thing is, is that it becomes sort of a three-party system. It's the company, the cloud service provider, and your customer. And so it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit more making sure you're paying attention to what is your responsibility as a company? Mm -hmm. What is the cloud provider's responsibility as a company? And how the customer interacts sort of within that ecosystem. So can you talk a little bit more about um, how companies addressed their employees working from home? So it, it, let's say today I come to you and I say, listen, are, are, are the percentage of our, this large company, 85% are now working from home, how do we mitigate these risks? So what, is your, what, is your, what are your thoughts about that? So I think, it, like, let's start with the basics. Right, and, and sometimes it's not always a technical solution. So like process, policy. Have you changed your policies? Because mm -hmm. you should have, right? Have you changed how they actually do business? You should have, right? Are you going to let them print everything out in their home in whatever their office is or something? Or are you going to limit that activity? So are you going to change some controls that you have in place? So those are the things that some companies have done well and some companies have not done as good as, you know, maybe we all would hope. But it is really like it's changing policies, it's changing process, and it's changing controls, right? And that's, you know, there's a big difference between coming into the office space like you and I did today and really where a company has... I would say, for lack of a better word, much more control right. over sort of what you're doing in the network. And then when you're at home and you're utilizing maybe uh, your home router, which hasn't been updated in quite some time, mm -hmm. you're utilizing your own equipment and, and some of those things. So it's, it's really, I, I would say, back to basics. Like, as I just mentioned, can you print everything out? Do you have that? You should be able to in most cases. Right. Right. Uh, is there a way uh, that they are authenticating, which is validating that it is actually you? So there are many different ways you can do it. Most devices have what's called a MAC address, which is a unique equipment identifier, right? There's an IP address that most of us have from our home that is fixed, right? So it, it is recognizing some of these changes that come from work from home, mm -hmm. and how are you making that part of your, I would say, control process. Okay. And uh, for, for some companies, I imagine this would be very expensive to put in safeguards and to ensure that the people who are at home are employing everything that they need to be doing to keep things safe. I don't know if, it, if I would say it's expensive as much as it's going to take time to, okay. right, uh, I would say implement those processes, also to train the people of what's expected of them. Like how many of us have actually received any training about work from home? Hey, here is our new policy. 
Here are some of the new processes and controls we're putting in place and just want to make everyone aware. Right. So I would say everyone listening out there, ask yourselves that. Have you yourselves received any additional training about working from home, about policy change, about maybe what you're doing differently? Or if you haven't, well, maybe it's to think about maybe you should. Right. Right. So the number of threats and instances of cyber attacks is increasing. Is that accurate? Every year. I think last year, the uh, Internet Criminal Complaint Center, I think there was $4 billion just in what the FBI attract in the United States. I think we're talking several trillion dollars globally, and they expect that to increase exponentially in the next three, four years. But why? Why is that number increasing? It's increasing because there is a lack of norms. Uh, It's increasing because there's a lack of policy, regulation, and law. So it's it's a strange dynamic, right? And so when we look... And that's the reason I I mentioned my background previously. It's very easy for someone like myself, who was actually a coder back then, and I can still play in Python and do some things now. And if you did not have any technology background, right? So we're in this unique place, I think, in history, where our policymakers in Congress have a very difficult time and challenging time understanding this space understanding the pace of technological change and what maybe policy legislation they can put in place Mm -hmm. to have some guardrails. I think many of the agencies in the United States and I would say some of the regulators all struggle with like how do they actually put some things in place. And then when you look at cyber, there are no geographical boundaries. Okay. All right, so how do you... You're attacked by a group that maybe was located in pick your country, okay? And how are you actually going to do anything about that? Yeah. So it is a coalition of the willing, right? And it is very, very challenging. And, you know, many times uh, when I was at the FBI and even now you'd notify a country Uh, about some criminal activity, and then you'd see that they recruited them as actually working for the government. So it's a very difficult environment. I don't think there are, you know, norms that have been established uh, to sort of in this, in the world that we're operating right now. And that's until we do that and define, Mm -hmm. you know, that behavior and and make sure we have those agreements. uh, Unfortunately, we're going to continue to see this to rise. Yeah. So, Sean, you know most of our audience is in the tax department and very much focused on tax policy and tax issues. So what is the tax angle here? Because there's got to be one. There is always a tax angle, right? And to all of those tax professionals out there, I would just tell you, there are actually tax credits, both at the federal and state level, on sort of the research and development costs of new technology. And that includes even in cybersecurity. So we've actually uh, worked with several companies and brought in some of our tax professionals at PwC and worked with them. And it's actually, it is a great, uh, you know, way to sort of look at what you're trying to do as a company, right, is to innovate and leverage technology. And it just is another way where the tax professionals actually make it to be a, a, a true benefit to the company and decrease the cost. 
So, but so let's talk about the evolution then of of what you're seeing today. Where do you see it going, short term and long term? I think we're you know short term we're going to see these attacks increase, and and I think we're going to see a pivot of the government. You know, so when I was in there, we would have many discussions uh, at the White House about sort of how do you define some of these. Uh, I would say rules mm-hmm. in, in the world of cyberspace? How do we kind of determine uh, what activities we can take on different parts of the government? And I think we're still struggling with that right now. So short term, I think uh, we're going to see more of it. I think the Biden administration, in all fairness, uh, I think they have some very good people in place. So when you look at the National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, who was my counterpart when I was at Bureau, he's at the NSA, is an excellent uh, individual in that role, and he will help, I think, define some things that haven't been done previously. You have the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, who's doing things from a DOJ perspective regarding ransomware and, and trying to, I would say, lean forward and do some aggressive things. You have uh, Director Jen Easterly at CISA. So all you know, former co- colleagues of, mm-hmm. of mine that are definitely cyber's top of mind. Um, but still, they're operating in a challenging environment, even within the government. Okay. Right. So I think in the short term, uh, we're going to kind of get a little bit better, um, but it's going to be, I think, small increments. We're still figuring out inside the government. I would say a operating model that actually works effectively, uh, inefficiently. Longer term. What we need to do is get a hold of what we call the threat picture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was some recent legislation proposed about a national breach notification law, um, and I think there was uh, some issues with that. But I think that will be passed in the short to medium term. So I'm hopefully within the next year or so. Um, and what does that do for everyone? It really gives, I think, the private sector and the public sector all one view of what we're facing out there. Because right now, all of the listeners, whether they've been breached in the last year, the last two years, three years, or they're gonna get breached, they're in a little bit of a cocoon and they don't see that, nor does the government, mm-hmm. right? And so what that uh, you know, national breach notification law would do is really give everyone an idea of what that threat looks like and be able to translate that. What does that then mean is the risk to us? Longer term. I think we're, uh, we'll hopefully see some international norms established. I think we'll see uh, there's already some work being done with the EU, right? There'll be some work with some other countries, and it will be something that we will work together on and look to make it a kind of a safer cyber mm-hmm. world out there. Mm-hmm. So I think you're going to see much more legislation. You're going to see, hopefully... At a federal level, uh, Congress sort of pick up the onus versus the states. It is, we have 50 state breach notification laws. Not helpful. No, that's, right? that, that's a lot. That, that is a lot. And you're seeing, you know. And are they consistent? Uh, they are not. And, and then you're seeing the same thing with data privacy and when something happens and, and how and when they should be notified. So we've really got to get our act together as a country right, and, and figure out getting our arms around this. Um, so the, the Solarium Commission has done some great work in this space. A lot of their recommendations were adopted. And I, I, I think we'll see some things. It's just 
Unfortunately, the government moves slow. And I would tell you, this is what I say to folks is, the paradigm has changed out there. The private sector has all the information. Right. Right? And it used to be that the government had all the information. I'm being, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole there. Not all the information, but most of it. Okay? Now the private sector does have most of that intelligence. Right? So we need to find a way to harness that intelligence with what the government knows right, and come together. And I am a huge advocate of really increasing that public-private partnership. Neither the government nor the private sector can do it alone. Long term, I hope to see that the government will actually intercede when some of these attacks uh, take place and actually help the private sector actually defend against these attacks. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a a necessity in in really looking at them uh, being integrated in a much greater Mm -hmm. uh, fashion. So what is the engagement right now between the public and private sector? It is improving. It's not near what it needs to be. It just is not near what it needs to be. So, you know, the, um, the, uh, the JCDC, which is CISA just created, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaboration Group, and, and really it's a group of private sector companies that have come together, um, and they talk about how to actually um, prepare and respond uh, to incidents. So they're doing some great work. When you look at, you know, the FBI, the NSA, um, and, you know, other parts of CISA, they're doing mm-hmm. a, a great job out there. It's uncoordinated. Mm-hmm. There is a little bit of, like, some business rules need to be established inside the government. Right. Right, to sort of, un- so the private sector is not confused and understand. And I think also, as all of us out there, taxpayers, we want an effective and efficient government. Right. Right. So how do we leverage some of the resources we already have out there and some other things? For instance, the FBI has over 400 offices in the United States. Maybe we should leverage them collectively as a whole of government approach. Right. That's not to say that some of the other agencies. Right. It should be, as I repeat, a whole of government approach. Right. So elements of DHS, CISA is part of DHS, CISA, right, the NSA and some others that can actually bring to the private sector some of the expertise and knowledge and, and share with them. So we just have a, the, the, the folks I mentioned previously that have done a good job. Um, we've got to keep on leaning forward. We've got to do a better job. And are, are, is the private sector reaching out to the government or vice versa? How, how uh, they that they are, but I, but I think it is um, not on a routine enough basis. Okay. And I think it is company dependent versus a relationship that has been built versus every company feels very comfortable calling the government and they know who to call in the right. government. Right. I would say that is not the case right now. But it's, it's a work in progress, in fairness to all, right? There's a lot of uh, folks out there that are working hard each and every day in the government, and I am very grateful to all of them. Um, but in the same sense, I think we've got to look at this risk um, which I would, I would say is existential risk. And I don't say that to scare everyone yeah. as much as we've got to get our arms around this and understand it, right? So to be able to deal with it effectively. So it's not affecting all those companies listening out there. Right. You're not losing, uh, the average breach is around $4 million. That's just the breach itself. The other repercussions from shareholders and stock price and some of the changes that they need to make is much, much greater. 
So there is definitely uh, a cost to sort of not doing anything that we, as a, you know, each of us in, in our organizations need to make sure we address. Do companies now have a person who is leading up the cyber effort? So everyone would say that's the, the CISO, which is the Chief Information mm -hmm. Security Officer. And I would say if you say that, that is wrong. Okay, it should be the CEO. The CEO owns the risk of the company, right? right? And, and so obviously you can call the CISO the quarterback and they can coordinate right. all the activities, but it is really everyone's role. Even the tax folks that are listening today and all the other people, it is all of our role. We're in this together and we all have a role to play. So some of the major breaches I've been part of, mm -hmm. right, we've seen like definitely a shift where, you know, the business unit leaders understand and have actually metrics, right, related to, right, tech, cyber, digital risk, mm -hmm. right, and making sure. So it's everyone's job, right? You may have that CISO that's being that sort of quarterback and coordinating all those activities, but I think sometimes we get into this, um, a little bit of, uh, I would say, faulty thinking where, oh, it's the CISO. They, they have that over there. No, it's, it's all of our jobs. Right, right. So a company really has to get organized and each of their departments, tax department, human resources, marketing, everything, and get organized in how you're protecting your data, how you're protecting your systems. Absolutely. And, you know, one of, one of the most effective things I've, I've seen, right? So when I talk about training and awareness, right, most companies do that. I would say there's the what's in it for me mm -hmm. question, right? And the companies that have best practices are the ones that actually talk to the employees about, hey, this is how you secure your personal bank account. Best practice. Right. Right. People are paying attention and saying, oh. That's a good thing. I need to do that. I need to do multi-factor authentication when I'm doing my banking or, or logging on to, you know, something that's sensitive or important. So I would just tell you that, yes, it's all of our job, but I think it's also the responsibility of the company. Like, you have to, like, make it so people want to make it. So that what's in it for me question, I think, is where I've seen companies leverage that mm -hmm. from a personal and then bridging the gap to the organizational perspective that actually helps build that culture of security. So you talked earlier about your speaking with boards or connecting with boards. What is their role and what exactly are you talking to them about? So as you know, right, boards have a kind of a duty of care, right, that oversight uh, responsibility. So I'm talking to them about do you understand this risk? And really getting to, like, from a governance perspective. Right. Uh, right? Do, are you organized as a board appropriately where you're dealing with this risk? Mm -hmm. Do you have the right expertise? Is the cadence you're talking about this risk? CEOs listed as the number one risk in our CEO survey. Uh -huh. Right? So, yep. like, are you addressing this risk, like, once a year? Twice a year, every quarter, are you addressing it on the audit committee, a risk committee, the full board? So really understanding from a governance perspective, right? Do you understand the regulatory and legislative sort of, I would say, guardrails within your industry? 
So they need to be up on that. What are the privacy laws? What are the privacy, data privacy uh, laws and regulations out there? What are the cyber security right, regulations out there that you need to be, as a board member, aware of the environment? Are you aware of, are you doing training? Mm-hmm. Auditable training, mm-hmm. right? So are you documenting in board minutes that you are actually on a journey as a board to get smarter in this area? Right, and kind of looking at that. You know, unfortunately, I've worked with some boards that actually have been cited by regulators for their lack of oversight of, of this risk. Are you aware of right, the threat intelligence out there? Are you aware of your specific industry? Who typically targets that? So I'm not, not, I'm not talking about the ones and zeros and the malware and all that. I'm saying, do you understand sort of that threat environment right, that mm-hmm. you're, you're facing? Do you have some baseline dashboards reporting? Not about how many times we stopped bad emails or phishing attempts or how many times our firewalls blocked uh, you know, certain uh, things that were trying to be done to the company, but are you looking at key risk indicators, right. right, KRIs? So do you have the right reporting where you're actually looking at it from a risk perspective and it fits within, you know, your risk appetite? So, I, you know, and then the last thing is, are you looking at sort of those reference documents? So uh, a lot of board members now know about like the NIST cybersecurity framework, mm-hmm. right? Which is really a, a risk management tool to look at the various functions, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, and sort of your company's capabilities in these areas in looking at that. So I think there's some basics. So I think you know boards are also making that shift. A lot of boards are struggling with, do we bring someone with that specific expertise onto the board? So those are a lot of the uh, the areas that you know boards are sort of um, grappling with, right. and some of the things that I'm talking to them about. So when you think about companies and next steps that they should be taking right now, when thinking about either preventing cybersecurity uh, attacks or dealing with one right now, um, what are two or three things that you would suggest companies do? Uh, ex- first is expect mayhem. So there is not one company I've been present at, and I've been present at many breaches, where it is not mayhem, no matter how many times you practiced. What does mayhem look like? Mayhem looks like uh, a lot of people running around, some disjointed efforts, uh, you know, sort of, I, I would say, a little bit of a lack of people sure about what their responsibility mm-hmm. is or isn't. Um, a lot of outside people being involved that were not involved in a lot of the training exercises, et cetera. So it's just, I would say, a little bit of confusion okay. uh, that happens. So expect that. Okay. It's, it's okay. It happens to every company. But if you have practiced, it's going to go a lot better. Uh, and the one thing I would say to every you know, executive out there listening is transparency. Right. I mean, there is there are no more secrets anymore in the world. It is going to come out eventually. Right. And be a good, transparent communicator. Keep your customers updated. Be transparent about what you know, what you don't know and what you're doing to find out about what you don't know. But I think we've seen some CEOs that have done a fantastic job at that 
transparency and communication, and I think we've seen some, some that have been uh, challenged. The other thing is you have to interact with your customers quickly. So, you know, there's a lot of delay. Sometimes there's some legal implications or concerns. Mm -hmm. And I would just ask all the business folks out there to run the business, right? You have to do it with a legal team. They are great assets whenever you're going through one of these uh, incidents. But you got to remember that first and foremost, right, you have a duty to the business. Mm -hmm. And so how do you make sure that you're making the right business decisions, communicating effectively, not only outside, whether it's a PR firm or your own comms people, but how are you internally communicating to your own folks, right? Do you have sort of, you have the investigations module all set up? Do you have human resources so people are not working 18 hours a day for three months, right? right? Do you have your finance people in there because there are gonna be some extra costs and expenditures? Right? Do you have your legal team in there that is giving you some legal guidance because you need them? They are invaluable in these type of things. So do you have intelligence? What are they saying about your company and social media? What are they saying about in the news about what's happening? So you're able to stay abreast of all these things. So it's a, it's a, it is really a lot of things that are happening at once. But once you know, those companies that have done that training, it's sort of there is the initial mayhem but it comes together. Right. The companies that have not done that, the mayhem tends to be prolonged. That's, yeah. So uh, expect confusion and mayhem. Hmm. Practice the fire drill. Practice for the fire drill. Absolutely. Um, And then communicate and be transparent. Great advice. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and thanks for summarizing. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, this has been absolutely fascinating and I hope you'll come back. I will. Thanks so much for having me, Sindhu. Absolutely. And so just one final question. Before we started filming, you and I were talking about the Americans, and I have to ask, (laughs) is life really like that? So the Americans is loosely based on an accurate story. So when uh, I was over national security for the FBI, um, uh, it it is public. So there were um, a group of uh, Russians that have been living here for some time, some of them married and had uh, children. Uh, and we had been aware of this activity for quite some time, ended up uh, arresting them, and then there was an actual uh, exchange done with the Russian government. Wow, okay. So, so it is loosely based on reality. true story. <laughs> well, I think anyone who's listening who's a fan of the Americans will be, <laughs> will be grateful you said that. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Policy On Demand interview with Sean Joyce. A link to the video version of this conversation is included in the description of this episode, as well as a link to PwC's 25th Annual Global CEO Survey. Stay with Policy On Demand and PwC's Tax Readiness webcast series for the latest insight and analysis on changes coming from Washington and around the world. Thanks for listening and take care. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.